This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the third chapter of Galatians, unpacking big ideas about Gentiles, their relation to the family of God, and a curse that Paul seems to suggest the law brings. Yeah. Let's just dive right in. No time to waste. So after sharing in our last episode, Paul shared with the Galatian believers about his confrontation with Peter and the leadership as they struggled to live in accordance to this gospel. He turns his attention now to them, specifically to these believing Galatians. The same understanding of this same gospel and this justification is what Paul stresses to the Galatians. And this interpretation that we talked about in the last episode is apparently one that they should have. They should have this interpretation and they should understand it. Listen to the language that Paul uses. Go ahead and read us our first paragraph there. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? (laughs) Apparently, Paul thinks this is pretty standard business here. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard. All right. Paul is worked up in this letter. Paul's mad. Paul is. Paul, this letter doesn't start with Paul's typical, if if we went all the way back to the beginning, it was missing like it's cushy, like grace and peace to you. I thank God for you every time I remember you in my prayers. And like that whole thing that's pretty standard with Paul, Gonzo in Galatians. The whole ending where it's like, Greet this whole list of people and give them my hugs. Like, all gone in Galatians. Like, Paul is like, you people of Galatia are driving me crazy. Do not ruin the gospel. Like, that is his tone here. So he calls them foolish Galatians, which happens to be a cultural play on the region of Galatia. There was actually a statement. The foolish Galatians, the stupid Galatians. We've read in other pieces of historical literature those of us that study those things. We mentioned before that the region of Galatia was like the it was like the backwoods, the the kind of backwater corner of the Roman Empire, the uncivilized p- folk. The people uh, there were considered barbaric, uneducated, and primitive. This is one of the reasons that which kind of Jews settled there, Brent? The uh, Shammai Jews. Shammai Jews. They settled there to remain unbothered by the culture around them. This play of Paul's is a direct attack on a very educated, like the Shammite Jews would not have been a backwater. <laughs> uh, you know, you foolish Galatians. That is, they went there like this very educated, very trained, very committed group of people went to settle in the backwater country to avoid, but they themselves are not of that flavor. So this, this direct attack on a very educated group of people uh, who should know better than to believe the lies that they are tempted to believe. It's a safe bet to say that Paul is a little upset here. Paul asks them to think about their own experience. Was it by faith or by being Jewish? Remember the mixat ma'asei Torah. He, he specifically used what phrase here in our English, Brett? He says, works of the law. The works of the law. So he wants to know, was it by faith or by the mixat ma'asei Torah? Was it by faith or by being Jewish that you received the Spirit? They aren't Jewish. They are the Theosebes, who are being tempted to convert to Judaism. So the answer to all of Paul's questions are obviously faith. 
It is by faith that they receive salvation. It's by faith they experience the Spirit. It's by faith that they are justified. Their whole story has been about faith. So why would they want to give up on that and make it about the mixat ma'aseh ha-turah? Why would they want to make it about the works of the law? About being Jewish? Why are they trying to turn their story? Paul mentions their suffering in this passage. Their suffering being in vain. But what suffering is Paul referencing? How have these Gentile believers suffered? The answer would be at least twofold, at the very least. First, they would have suffered by holding a very unpopular worldview within the Jewish world of Galatia. Because as you've already pointed out, in this corner of the diaspora, the Jews follow the teaching of Shammai. And to hold to this view, this, this view of Paul, the Hillel view, which would have been even more progressive than Hillel's, we're going to find out here in just a moment, would antagonize the world where you belong and, and make you the source of intense religious persecution. Second, they would have also been the source of serious Roman persecution. Remember, if these Gentiles are not accepted by the larger Jewish community of Galatia, if they're pushed out, they will fall under the great Jewish, they will not fall under the great Jewish exception. We talked about the Jewish exception arranged by Herod the Great, which said that Jews didn't have to worship the emperor or do other things the emperor demanded. Well, if they don't consider you Jewish, if the Romans show up and they go, well, those people are Gentiles, they're not a part of our thing. If they don't embrace you and bring you in, you're now in deep trouble. It'd be required to engage in emperor worship, which would be, for them, very much so idolatry. And at different times in history, refusal to do this could be punishable by death. So these early Gentile believers have suffered a great deal, and that is why they want to convert. They could just get rid of all this if they could just convert to Judaism. But Paul's point is that this is the very story they are trying to tell the world of Galatia. They have suffered for the sake of the gospel. If they convert now, all of that suffering would have been in vain. But it hasn't been in vain because the gospel is being put on display through their refusal to give in to the popular opinion. So Paul then uses a typical Hillel argument. This is an argument that Hillel would use. And Paul uses it to say that Abraham is their great example when it comes to being justified by faith. So go ahead and give us the next little bit, Brent. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Hillel used, uh, used this same idea to make the point that Genesis 15... In Genesis 15 is where Paul just quoted out of. Abraham was justified by what, Brent? Abraham believed God, and it was right. credited to him as righteousness. This belief, this faith, this trust would be the Bema word I would like to use. The trust. Hillel believed that Abraham was justified by trust. He was justified before he was what, Brent? Circumcised. Which happens how many chapters later? couple. Two chapters later. Two chapters later, he'll be circumcised. But two chapters before he's circumcised, he's already what? Declared righteous. Justified. He was justified before he had one single rule to follow. Like God had asked Abraham to do things, leave his home, cut animals in half. But God had not given Abraham a covenantal rule to live by yet. In Genesis 15, there's no Torah, there's no book, there's no set of rules, there's no covenantal. Abraham's covenantal relationship at that point was the uh, the kind of covenant that would exist between uh, two lovers and a betrothal, or a much more relational covenant than a suzerain vassal covenant. Covenant, no definitions, no terms. 
And if this is the case in Genesis 15, then Shammai is wrong. You cannot be justified by your works. Abraham was justified long before there were any works to be done. However, Paul takes this reasoning one step further than Hillel ever did. It will be helpful here to think back to the conversation we had, Brent, about three groups of people. Can you remember who they were? I'm going to guess that we're talking about the the brothers. Brothers. Perfect. You're on the right track. Children of Abraham. Children of Abraham. And the God-fearing Gentiles. And the God-fearing Gentiles. In the Greek, known as the? Theosebes. Theosebes. Brothers, children of Abraham, Theosebes. Paul makes the case that the gospel was announced to Abraham himself. Paul sees his gospel in the very story where God announces he's going to bless all nations through Abraham, which would be worth a pause here, that Paul just said the gospel existed all the way back with Abraham. This is one of the cases in the New Testament, one of a handful that's going to suggest that Abraham had the gospel. So while I totally believe the gospel is about Jesus and the cross and all those things, I also need to recognize the scripture also references a gospel truth that transcends those things. It, that Jesus on, on the cross may, might be the climax of that gospel truth, the fullness of that gospel truth, but there's a gospel truth that extends. And in this case, he says, this gospel for Abraham is that all nations are going to be blessed through him. And we can say that that's, well, yeah, he's talking about Jesus when he says all nations will be blessed through him. Uh, we've looked all throughout our session one and session two material. That's not what God's asking Abraham in Genesis when he says all nations will be blessed through him. So, Paul says that if this is the story of God, the gospel, as he calls it, then what makes a person a covenant member of Abraham's family is not circumcision. Contrary to Jewish thought at that time, Paul says faith is the marker of being a child of God in the family of Abraham. So he's going beyond just talking about justification. He's talking about family membership to a Jew a child of Abraham is a is which group, Brent? What was it? What was a child of Abraham? Brothers, children of Abraham, and Theosebes, children of Abraham, referenced. They were the converts to Judaism. Yeah, the proselytes, the full fledged convert. You want to be a child of Abraham? You convert. You take on what? You take on Torah. You take on Torah, referenced or or symbolized in what's the sign of that covenant? Circumcision, right? If you want to be a child of Abraham, that's somebody who's taken on circumcision and converted to Judaism. They are actually Jewish and distinct from the Theosebes. Once you were a once you were a child of Abraham in the Jewish world, you were like you were as Jewish as the person who was born a Jew. They are actually Jewish and distinct from the Theosebes. But Paul's argument is that a Gentile with faith is adopted into the family of Abraham. They become Benai Avraham, children of Abraham. For Paul, the story of God has always been about the promise not the law. For Paul, the story of God has always been about being a person of faith, of trust, of belief, not about being Jewish. For Paul, the story of God has always been about believing in the promises of God, not about obeying the rules. It doesn't mean that all the, it doesn't mean that obeying the rules doesn't matter, Brent. It doesn't mean that being Jewish doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that the law doesn't matter. No, it just means that that's what the story is about. For Paul, this has always been about trusting the story of God. If a person will trust in the promises of God, then they are of the same stock as Abraham. So what about being Jewish? Does this mean nothing? Why does God waste all of his time with the law? 
if that's where we were all headed. Uh, The law is certainly going to have its purpose, but before he tells the Galatians about that, he has to make his case about two ideas, Brent, law and promise. Now, in order to screw this all up, how about you read us the very next verse of Galatians? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. All right. So at first glance, this appears to say that anybody who follows the law is cursed. So have that pint of bacon. That we referenced last episode, Brent. Jews and Gentiles alike. It kind of sounds that way. It kind of sounds like if I'm trying to eat kosher, I don't know what I'm doing over here because apparently I'm cursed. Sounds like. And that has certainly been taught, hasn't it? In far too many Christian circles. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But a closer inspection of the text, especially when translated appropriately, reveals what Paul has just said within a Jewish context. That same phrase that we've been looking at. What's the phrase, Brent? The works of the law, the mixat ma'ase hatara. You got it. The ergu namu in the Greek is used here, Paul's statement in context clearly says that those who rely on the mixat ma'ase haTorah in the Greek, the ergu namu, those who rely on the works of the law for their justification. So Paul here is saying, listen, if you're trying to find your justification by being Jewish, you're under a curse. He then quotes Deuteronomy to make his case. And whenever a book like this is quoted, Brent, what should we know by now? Four sessions into the Baymoth podcast. Probably some more context to that quotation. You probably want to go back and look at that. So in the context of this Deuteronomy quote, the people of God are being reminded of their charge to carry the law as they enter into the land God is giving them all the way back in Deuteronomy. They're about ready to enter into the promised land. They're going to possess this land. And the story has the people of God being split up on two mountains. On one mountain, puts, they put one party, and one party shouts the commands of Torah, and the other party shouts back their agreement to follow those commands of Torah. And then after they shout back their agreement, they also pronounce curses on that same mountain. If we don't obey those commandments, if we don't follow Torah, may we be cursed. The clear implication of Paul's quotation here is that if, you are rely, if you're relying on the works of the law for your justification— You have to live under this dark cloud that follows you everywhere you go because you know that you're going to make mistakes and such reliance ends up being a curse. This isn't a curse that comes from God. This is a curse that comes from the sheer weight of trying to live a perfect life, a pure life. If that's where you're trying to find your job, if you're from Shammaiville, if you're you're following Shammai's yoke, that's a curse, Paul says. So Paul continues to say again that we understand this, in fact, is not where justification comes from. So go ahead and give me the next little verse tidbit there. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Okay, so this time when Paul wants to make the case that they are justified by faith, he goes to the prophet Habakkuk for his quotation. It's a brilliant move employed by Hillel, not just Paul. Paul wasn't the one that created it. Hillel did the same thing. When making his arguments about justification, Hillel noted that when Habakkuk talked about righteousness, he talked about living by emunah. Emunah. Now, emunah, we actually have that in uh, one of our things that we taught people to say on our website, Brent. We taught them to say, uh, the verashtik lele olam, verashtik libzedek. Uva mishpat, uva chesed, uva rachamim, bereshtik leb ebunah, leb emunah, 
I will betroth thee to myself in faithfulness, that faithfulness. So Habakkuk said that those, those who are righteous are living by faithfulness. Not just faith, but faithfulness. And it's about putting your faith in, into action. So by following the Habakkuk passage with another quotation from Leviticus, connecting the idea of living by, Paul is employing one of those brilliant rabbinical moves here. We talked about Jesus doing this, called a Gezerah Shavah. He took the same phrase, located in two different passages, and then tied the passages together. It's a brilliant move, Gezerah Shavah. How do you spell it? G-E-Z-E-R-A-H, and then Shavah, S-H-A-V-A-H. Guys, rush about. We could probably find a little wiki article and link it if we wanted to. So Paul Paul uses this Gezrashava, something that only brilliant, educated, the most educated, the best with the text could do, and he ends up making a case that the law is not there for our justification. It's there to teach us how to live with emuna. The law is teaching us how to live with faithfulness. I realize that this all oh, probably really confusing as we talk about this. So let me try to sum it up maybe in a couple sentences. Here's what Paul's point is. If you try to find your justification in the works of the law, the miksatma aseha Torah, the part of the law that makes you Jewish, you're going to find yourself under the curse. If that's what you're looking, if that's where you think you're going to get your justification, not that it's bad inherently, but if that's where you're going to try to get your justification, you're going to find yourself under the curse. But the law wasn't given to find your justification. On the contrary, the law was given to teach you how to live by faith. So Paul continues. Go ahead and give me the next little bit, Brent. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So Paul follows one Gezerah Shavah up with a second Gezerah Shavah. Stinking incredible. I love it. By employing another Gezerah Shavah, Paul connects the idea of the curse to Jesus. By referring to Christ's crucifixion in reference to being hung on a pole or a tree, some translations say, curse is a man who was hung on a tree, quote from Deuteronomy, Paul says that when Jesus subjected himself to crucifixion, he redeemed us from that faulty way of thinking and showed us what God's true plan is. When we properly understand where justification comes from and what God desires from that redemptive process, it opens us up to welcome the Gentiles into the family of God, not as theosebes, not as distant cousins, but as full-fledged children, benai avraham. Paul then uses an example to go back to his larger idea introduced in this last part of our conversation. So give us our next little bit. He's going he's gonna to employ an example, a, a test case, a, a metaphor here. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. 
But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Paul's making a very, very Jewish argument here. This is a very Jewish conversation. The irony is we usually use Galatians to be like, and nobody has to be Jewish anymore. But this is actually a very intensely Jewish conversation that Paul's in the middle of here with a bunch of people in Shammaiville who aren't Jews, but who sure want to be. And so they are tracking right along with this Jewish conversation. Paul's illustration demonstrates how he views the story of God. Just as you do not undo a covenant, we might think, uh, like if we think about contracts, we can do that here. Usually it's not helpful when we think about covenants to think about contracts, but it it might help us here. Like you, you don't just undo a contract or you don't undo a covenant by entering into a new one. Like if I... If I sign papers to buy your Apple Watch, Brent, and then decide I'm going to go over here and buy Becky's iPhone, I, it doesn't mean I don't have to pay for your Apple Watch. Anyway. We don't undo one just by doing something, uh, undo one by doing another. Paul makes the point that God's story is about promise. It's always been about promise. It wasn't about law. We didn't start with the law. It started with promise. The story of Abraham is a story about promise and not a story about law. Just because God enters into a covenant relationship with his people through the law over four centuries later, it does not undo the larger story that that we've already seen of God as a story of promise. This is a story about believing in God's promises. It's always been a story about that. It's always been about trusting the story. This story will not be about following rules. It's about living by faith. It's about faithfulness, and it's about the promises of God. This will have extraordinary implications for the Gentiles. But Paul is now going to have to explain why God would even give the law in the first place. Like, why do we even have the law? If that's where this whole thing is going, why did God waste his time? So we're left with this nagging question. If God's story has always been about the promise and not the law, then why would God have given the law in the first place? And Paul moves on to this very question next. Go ahead, Brent. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So Paul immediately says that there was something about how the promise of God had to be realized through the seed. However, until that day would come, the law was given to a mediator. I always see and hear a reference to Moses as God's mediator between God, whom Paul points out as one party, and his people being the second party. And Moses is this guy who stood between, and Moses is one that gave them the what, Brent? The law. So there's a promise, and eventually, someday... There's a fulfillment of this promise. There is that promise coming true. There is that taking that promise to the bank moment. But in the meantime, we have to get from there, from the beginning point to the ending point. And so Paul says, in order to get from here to there, God gave us through a mediator the law. Go ahead and keep reading. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One might notice how essential this reading is to make this chapter of Galatians consistent. For many who felt as though maybe we've been stretching this whole, the law is not based on, based on faith concept at the beginning of this episode, you may now see the dilemma created if we presume that such a statement means that the law runs contrary to faith. Like, a lot of times we read that paragraph that we started with, Brent, where it says the law is not built on faith, the law is contrary to faith, and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 of course the law works against faith. Well, Paul literally says the opposite right here. So that first reference earlier in our episode has to mean 
It has to be this Gezra Shava rabbinical argument that we see Paul engaging in uh, that we talked about earlier. You, you, you might notice that dilemma as you look at this. In fact, Paul is intentional when he points out that the law is not opposed to the promises of God. However, if a law could accomplish the same thing as the promise, it would have been given at the beginning. If the law can do what the promise can do, God wouldn't have wasted it. He would have just given the law. Like that would have been nice and easy. But there are certain things that law can't do and only promises, only the promises of God can The law cannot. Instead, the law was given for a supplementary purpose that helped the promise of God find its culmination in the capital S seed. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul now introduces a new concept. The English here uses harsh language, such as custody and locked up, and it makes the reader think more of prison than of anything else. But in fact, that's not actually at all what Paul is talking about here. So the Greek word that Paul uses for guardian here is pedagogos, which translates as pedagogue. And understanding this idea in the first century is going to help us a lot. Many of us, like myself, when I first heard this term just a handful of years ago, may be completely unfamiliar with the term pedagogue. Others may have heard it before. In our Western context, the idea of pedagogue, were you familiar with the term, Brent? No, not at all. Not at all. If you're in education or those kind of things, you may have bumped into the term. The term usually refers to in our Western world, in the modern sense, as a teacher. In fact, the King James translates this as schoolmaster. The Torah was given as our schoolmaster. But in the first century, the idea of, and that that gets us actually pointed in the right direction to be honest. But it's, it is different than that. In the first century, the idea of pedagogue was much different than that of a teacher. The pedagogue was a guardian, hence the translation, who was hired when a young individual came upon his or her inheritance for any number of reasons before they were old enough to claim that inheritance legally. For example, if he had an eight-year-old boy that came upon his inheritance because of the death of his father, he would be too young to legally see his inheritance realized. So they would hire a pedagogue to serve as the boy's guardian. The role is not the role of teacher, it's the role of protector. It is the pedagogue's responsibility to see to it that the boy arrives at his inheritance safely and is able to realize its consummation. Paul just said the law was given because the time had not yet come for the promise to be realized through the seed. So in the meantime, God needed a guardian or a pedagogue who would help get his people to the place where they could realize the consummation of God's promise. It was the pedagogue of God's people. But now that faith has come, now that the promise has been realized, now that we are old enough to receive the inheritance in spiritual terms, there's no need for the pedagogue. Once the child matured, he would lay claim to his inheritance and the role of the pedagogue would be complete. So Paul's larger point is now that we know God's promise has been realized, all nations will be blessed through you. Salvation has been opened to the Gentiles. This promise of Jesus is real and a reality. We no longer need to be subject. We, need, we don't need to subject ourselves to being led by a pedagogue. The inheritance of Abraham has been claimed. 
Now, some are obviously going to use the same logic to argue that Jews should now come out from under the pedagogue and quit following the law as well. But this would be to take Paul's teaching metaphor and pull it out of its context here, applying it in a way that Paul isn't using it here, never uses it anywhere in the New Testament, nor does anybody else. And it would be tempting to do that logically, and yet it's taking the metaphor and going too far with it. And this is clear. I mean, we've already talked about all the references to Paul observing temple rituals and sacrifices and festivals and kosher eating. It's just clear that that's not at all what Paul's mentality is. And and we recommended that book, Brent, by Lancaster, Thomas Lancaster, a few episodes back. He does a good job of, uh, he has a whole chapter on the pedagogue, does a really good job explaining that. So quick question on the uh, the idea that the law was the guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But Abraham was justified by faith long before that. So was Abraham just abnormally spiritually mature? Yeah, in a sense. And that's one of the reasons, one of many why I love kind of separating Genesis out into like a preface and an introduction rather than the narrative itself. Because I feel like you can almost tell the whole story of God in the book of Genesis. Rabbi Foreman actually says that uh, frequently. He says, actually, actually, Rabbi Foreman says, give me the first four chapters of Genesis. I can teach you anything you find in the Bible in the first four chapters of Genesis. Um, and I, I love that idea. But in a sense, um, Abraham is is kind of that imperfect. He's not he's not Jesus. He's not whatever. He's not a perfect fulfillment. He's this imperfect fulfillment of this truth. Like he gets it. He gets the story. He's the bedrock. He's the stock. He's the the pillar. The pillar. Yeah, absolutely. That we're going to build the story on. And yet we're not Abraham, but we come from Abraham. And so we have to get taught how to walk in this way. It's a really good question. Uh, so now that we have that, those pieces of context, Brent, how about we uh, finish this out? We're going to actually go into chapter four here a little bit, break some rules. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's a big statement right there. doesn't matter who you are, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. If you have faith, if you trust the story, if you trust the story, you are Abraham's seed and heirs. That is a bold. We just read over that. We take that for granted because we're Jesus followers. That is a bold, stone-cold statement by Paul to this audience. Go ahead. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So knowing the context here makes this teaching come to life. It's no longer riddled with confusion. God has brought the story to its day to its day of inheritance. We now see the promise of God find its fulfillment and the whole world being invited to redemption. What I love about this is it means that the inheritance of God's people is the inclusion of the Gentiles. Like that's what they've been 
Like God told Abraham, I'm going to bless what, Brent? Brent? All nations. All nations. So wouldn't it make sense that the inheritance that they're waiting for, the fulfillment of the story, the thing that we're hanging out under a pedagogue for would be the fulfillment of that process, all those nations being blessed. And now they all get invited in. So now we're going to have to turn our attention in the next episode to what's happening with these Galatian theosabes. If they're not Jews and they're Gentiles that want to convert... Why, what is up with this desire to usurp God's promises? All right. There you go. A little Sets more work. Us up for next one. We got more, more work, work to, do. to do in Galatians. The pint of bacon uh, is still sitting there on the, on the table, Brent. Maybe We're it's, to maybe it's out cooking back in the kitchen. It. There you go. We can smell yeah, they're, it. They're preparing it. The fumes wafting out of the kitchen. <laughs> oh, that's a terrible, terrible image to put in your mind, probably. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We will talk to you again soon with more on Galatians. Galatians.